Big Mind Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jake Hill. And today we are going to enjoy a rare moment of relative peace in the galaxy as we explore the realm of kings. Excelsior. We are nearing the end of our big read-through. We've made it through two big wars, three big wars now, uh, and we've now entered a new status quo, the Realm of Kings, which I have no idea why it's called that. Yeah, I was going to say, you know me in names. I hate naming things, and that's a terrible one. Yeah, Realm of I, Kings. I was expecting something, you know, really spinning out of War of Kings and the and the fight and whatever, but they, they could have just called this Big Bad Rift in Space. And it yeah, been although just the same. I do got to say, um, as somebody who's really enjoying the uh, Krakoa era of X-Men and the way that uh, certain like themes and settings and ideas permeate through all the books, I kind of feel the echoes of that in this. Like this is a very early prototype of that sort of storytelling mm-hmm. where there's just like five books that are dealing with like similar themes and bad guys and like settings and stuff. But they have nothing to do with each other. Yeah, yeah, they're it's pretty disjointed, and that's fine. That's fine. yeah, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> it's more than fine. I actually, I there's quite a bit of it that I really enjoy. Oh. Well, we'll get into that soon. Right. Well, so do you want to start with um? There's there's a one shot that's kind of acts as a prologue to this, which we've had before in each of the eras of this story. Yeah. So the just for anyone following along, the way we're gonna kind of organize this. Uh, we're going to be discussing you know, the Realm of Kings one-shot, and then we're going to be talking about the two miniseries, and then we're going to talk about uh, our Guardians and Nova issues. Because unlike War of Kings, where not that it was really important to read them in like this issue-by-issue, issue, really minute order, but that order kind of helped move things along. In this, they're all so you know, siloed off that much like the original Annihilation miniseries, you don't really need to read them in a particular order. Yeah, all the miniseries... Except for the Realm kinda... of Kings one-shot probably should come first. Right, as the clear thematic and uh, plot uh, prologue. Uh, yeah. That one-shot that we're going to discuss is written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, illustrated by Leonardo Mano and Mahmoud Asrar, colored by Bruno Hang, and lettered by VCs Corey Petit. So it's a bunch of uh, usual suspects, although Mahmoud Asrar, I, I'm really excited to see his early work because I like his contemporary stuff a lot. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately we don't actually get that much of his work in this. He kind no, of it's does, just a couple pages. Yeah, it's just a few pages, and we had we had some of his stuff on uh, one of the previous issues. Yeah, he's coming in uh, in and out. Yeah. I think he did some Nova arcs here and there. Yeah. Um, I just I like um. There's a couple of Marvel artists who I think are head and shoulders beyond where they are, were when they started. Uh, like mm-hmm. I love going back and reading the original Brian K. Vaughn run of Runaways with Adrian Alfana on art. Yeah. And you look at that, and you know it's Adrian Alfana. He's got a really uh, unique style. It's very easy to place. Uh, but then you look at his later work on um Ms. Marvel, and it's like it's like night and day in terms of quality. He's not only gotten stronger as an artist, but like really perfected his personal style and the things that make him unique. Mm-hmm. And I can see that with Mahmoud Asrar. It's the same thing with those couple of pages. I'm like, I know where that's going to be in, uh, in 10 years. It's already pretty, it's pretty good superheroics here. Uh, it's not really given a lot to do, but it's nice having this frame, the frame story, both in the main world. And then when we're in the main or, in the two the two different modes, we have two different artists. I like when 
they do it that way instead of just, oh, yeah, I guess we'll change artists midway through the story, whatever. Yeah, because Asrar is writing for when we're seeing the superheroes meeting in the big conference room, and then the bulk of the issue is Kazar going through this freaky adventure, and that's got the, the Leonardo Mano style. Yeah, and when I first saw that, I'm like, is this early Andrea Sorrentino? And it's not, but it, it kind of reminded me of his his stuff. A little bit less processed, less less digitally, like like really leaning into the digital. But you got a lot of the 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 shadows that kind of bubble rather than having clean lines. They're like circular, which really gives everything this very dirty, dingy look, which is perfect for what they wanted to do. But it's almost like restrained. Uh, yeah. Where... There's just like a little, a couple of busy touches on every page. Yeah. So, basically, Realm of Queen, Realm of Queens, Realm of Kings one shot. It opens up with you know the Nova, Nova, and the Guardians, and our good friend Wendell Vaughn sitting around a table along with the Project Pegasus scientist, kind of talking about the the rift that appeared at the end of War of Kings. This rift in space and time. And they're trying to figure out what's on the other side. And I really like moments like this in these ongoing superhero stories because I feel like um, you need to take a moment after every big thing happens to have, like, everybody sitting at the table to see who gets a seat at the table for these meetings. Yeah. And you can see who's important and also maybe go, why is this person X person not there? Yeah. But I so I, what I like here is that this is um, – uh, Project Pegasus is Earth trying to coordinate with the Nova Corps and the Guardians of the Galaxy, which are very, like, Earth-friendly space forces. But not everybody, mm-hmm. as we'll find out by the end. That that establishes that, like, everyone has their own agenda about what to do with this big crack in space and time. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's a fun scene. I don't know. It, it's really also there for anyone who wasn't reading, you know, one series or another. Uh, they kind of, you know brings him up to speed on all of that and also interestingly enough it references events in nova 29 and 30 which we'll talk about later which really it it doesn't matter when you read this they are you get the entire gist of you know the importance of it from this one panel in relation to the the greater realm of king's story Um, yeah we'll get to that later and the um, so the result of the meeting is that because Wendell Vaughn is right now like an energy ghost, he is the one who's going to fly through the big hole in space and time, the fault, to see what's on the other side of it and to report back in. And the second he flies in, he's like immediately beset upon by just like Lovecraft looking tentacle squid teeth monsters. And I mean, they, they even name the issue. The stars are wrong. So you know exactly what they're going for. Yeah, and the the Lovecraft references are not subtle. Uh, later, the characters in the Lovecraft universe will just straight up, instead of cursing, they'll say Fatagan. Yeah, and they talk about the Outer Gods and all of this. And it's it's kind of interesting that that's where they decided to go. That yeah, this, so... this is how they tie, or this is how Abner and Landing decide to kind of talk about you know, what what is this. It becomes dubbed the Cancerverse but kind of extrapolating upon the well what are the what are the these lovecraftian outer god type creatures if not just entirely hungry monsters that always want to keep spreading um so i actually i i looked up just to see the um, uh the marvel cosmic uh, cosmological distinction between all this stuff Mm -hmm. And um, so it turns out like uh, the very first time that like Lovecrafty stuff was uh, introduced in Marvel was in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. Um, 
in like Doctor Strange and Blade and Werewolf by Night and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and then in Conan the Barbarian, they just started straight up, just like in the original Conan stories, um, there was like a shared horror cosmology that uh, Lovecraft and uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs and the, all those guys were like sending letters to each other and borrowing each other's monster names. Huh. Uh, so that's in... why Shuma Gorath is part of Conan? Yeah, exactly. And um, so when Marvel was doing the Conan comics, some of the Conan comics were Lovecraft comics. And due to some insane ways that how Marvel makes their continuity count, that kind of like folded in just all the Lovecraft stories, which I believe are public domain, into mm, like, yeah. the Marvel backstory. But uh, Realm of Kings is the first time they get the name that the, is often used for them after the story, which is the Many Angled Ones. Which and... is appropriately creepy. Yeah, you like that, right? That's creepy. Yeah. And, and um, all of the stuff, the, the the world building that we do about the many angled ones in this, that um, is when you're doing this sort of Lovecraftian story in Marvel now that people are borrowing from the same stuff. Hmm. Wow. I didn't know that. That's that's fascinating. Because <laughs> here I thought it was just, oh, cool. These That, that gives me an, a, a good idea of this is they're all, they're all spooky, scary, and they're going to, I don't know, destroy your minds or something. Yeah, it works. I think it works either way. Um, but what I like is you get the one big page turn and you see the tentacle monster. Wendell Vaughn flies on, and then you get the next page turn, and that's the holy crap one where you see the Demon Avengers. Yeah, and it was also at this point that I went, wait a minute, this is what's been coming through all of the rifts. This is what's been on the other side of everything because it's always been these weird tentacle monsters, and then later they talk about how... Or actually, I think in a couple pages after Wendell shows up and the these Avengers attack, they're like, what's wrong with you? Why are you back so soon? And they're like, he's not our Wendell. I'm like, oh, shit. They killed their Wendell back in, like, Guardians number one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. And th- yeah. that actually reminded me while I was reading this. I'm like, oh, yeah, that means the, the Magus was probably also the traitor that Mantis was talking about in the first issue. Correct, yeah, and then by the end of Guardians, uh, all that kind of comes together, uh, which we'll talk yeah. about li- later in the episode. But before we get to that, I just kind of wanted to know, what do you think of these Demon Avenger designs? I mean, they're fine. They, they just have the glowy red eyes, and they all look you know, slightly evil because they've got darker costumes with red and Captain America has a, a pentagram on his chest. And well, that's what, I'm really, that's what I'm so taken with is the Captain America, but all the America's uh, symbols have been replaced by pentagrams. Yeah. I mean, like, they're fine. They're, it does just enough to differentiate it, but, like, I didn't need them to be special or super totally different i just i de- yeah, that demon captain america him. design uh has stuck with me for over the years i always that wanted to come back design i could i could take or leave iron man yeah iron man's the the dork of the group as per usual. yeah so they beat up a bunch of whatever they are starfish monsters they capture wendell and bring him back to the trapeze trapezita heteron that's what I was just trying to sound it out. That's as closer that I'm gonna get. I'm so tired. I, I'm tired. I'm tired. Everyone. I don't. I can't pronounce these things. The, the, yeah, the weird. The weird place. The weird place. And they put him in an orb. They put Wendell in an orb, and they they do a bunch of talking and exposition, and we kind of learn what's up with them. And then they're all like, you know what? I want to invade the other side of this this rift. And guess what? We can also track it back through using your energies. And he, Wendell's like, well, shit. 
Uh, yeah. But we find out that the Scarlet Witch, Wanda, is she's not totally on board with it, which is which is an interesting development where she's like, the only reason I have to go along with this is because they would find out I've, I lied and then they'd kill me. Well, and everyone in this universe is immortal and just, like, held in this, like, torturous thrall by these awful Lovecraft monsters. Yeah. It's just like a – it's a horror universe where the worst has already uh, passed, and now everybody just lingers. Yeah. And I guess – so. The, and the big theme that this introduces, which is one that touches almost every single book in big and small ways, is that uh, typically uh, death has been – you know, it's comic books, so, like – uh, there's been a binary of good versus evil, and good has been associated with the forces of life, and evil with the forces of death. And like mm-hmm. usually, that's Thanos is the forces of death, and everyone opposes him is like fighting for life, and that's what they've argued. But here, for this uh, build up to what's going to be the final battle, is um, a world where the the forces of life are are like dark, and it's all the dark things that comes with that, including yeah. just like a. Uh, endless unescapable suffering like not even death will help you escape which is really terrifying yeah all of, so this part of the story more than anything else has stuck with me just because now I, i've encountered this sort of uh playing with these ideas and other sci-fi fantasy uh, as i got older but i read these when i was a college kid mm-hmm. and i just had never really seen these themes executed in quite this uh, striking a way yeah it is i mean this whole issue does a fantastic job of really selling how scary it can be to have never-ending life in this manner. Like a lot of times, you see like vampire stories where they're like, "It sucks to be immortal." Like Angel's broody and sad, or like Andrew Bennett is broody and sad. <laughs> but it always feels just like, "Oh, boo-hoo, get over yourself." And like on some level, you understand it, but here you really feel, and you're like, "Oh no, no, no." Never-ending life can be terrifying. Well, so especially so then uh, Wendell is rescued by the Vision, who in this world has been hiding invisibly and intangibly inside of his wife Scarlet Witch for, like, how long does he say? Uh, five years. For five years, um, waiting for, like, his best opportunity to do something heroic, and he's just like, rescuing Wendell Vaughn right now is my best shot for any help in this entire universe. Which is just, like, mind-breaking, uh, but it works, and he springs Wendell, and a version of Wendell uh, tri- escapes back to Project Pegasus in the 616 universe. And the one-shot ends with just, like, a tantalizing cliffhanger that it might not be our Kazar, or if he did escape, he didn't escape uh, alone. Yeah, with the big, the big swirly eyes, and uh, I really hope it's, it's not Knull. I was just thinking, this is uh, years <laughs> before Knull was even uh, introduced, although Thank I kind of I like reading it as foreshadowing. I like the idea of Knull being associated with these uh, many angled ones. The Cancerverse. Yeah, that seems like a, a cool slash terrifying alliance. I see something there as a fan of these sorts of stories. That seems like something that had Donnie noticed. He, but he's a big fan of this run, so I'm sure he wanted to, to connect it back. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. Um, but that's the um, that's the one shot. I think it's a, a fantastic prologue, especially because while the themes of this come back, the uh, Demon Avengers on the other side of the portal and like the Kazar cliffhanger aren't addressed in anything else we read this week. Yeah, which surprised me. I was kind of hoping that we would get, I don't know, some follow up to that in one of the books, but we don't get it in any of them, which makes me question why the hell like the Inhumans and the, the Son of 
Hulk thing needed to be branded Realm of Kings. Like if the one shot was entirely dedicated to this this cancer versus fault thing, what was the point of the other? But I guess I'm I'm we'll get into it. Is like with the Inhumans, the fault is important because that's where they lost Black Bolt. Uh, and with Son of Hulk, it's important because... Um, um, That's how he enters his adventure, too. Yeah, I guess. I, I genuinely was... I was like, I, I don't remember. Uh, let's uh, let's start with uh, Realm of Kings and Humans, which was mm-hmm. written by uh, Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning again, illustrated by Pablo Ramondi, Wellington Alves, and Tim Seeley, uh, inked by Andrew Hennessy, Nelson Pereira, Pablo Ramondi, and Victor Olaz- uh, Olazaba, colored by Adriano Lucas, and lettered by VCs Joe Caramanga. Mm-hmm. Realm of Kings and Humans uh, did a strong job at trying to win me over immediately by introducing Blastar's, like, shitty cousin whose name is Rancor. Count me in. <laughs> Just, like, we get, like, a, a couple of doses of Blastar, and um, you know what? That's all you need. If Blastar's in your comic, you're already getting a 10 out of 10 for me. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I, I guess this is not Blastar, this is Rancor, but Rancor is even, if anything, giving Blastar a loser cousin is a genius idea. But, I mean, we do get some Blastar later on. No, not in this. We don't get Blastar in this. We just get Blastar's forces attacking a suspiciously human-looking Kree area. Like, they're wearing early 2000, or the, I guess this is mid-2000s now, or 2010s, fashion, but it looks slightly spacey. And that's oh, what yeah. I took away from the entirety of this issue. That that was the most striking thing. I kind of like the style. It actually looks a lot like the Guardians movies, where like everybody has like T-shirts, but they have cool alien letters on them. I don't know. If I was like, they just colored a, a crowd shot blue. Yeah, you ain't wrong. There's a question that we uh, tried to resolve on a previous episode that uh, I would like to readdress, uh, given this miniseries. Mm-hmm. Are the Inhumans cool? No. They're not cool? As I finished reading this, and I hated them more than I did before. <laughs> all of them. Every single well, one. Except maybe Crystal. That's But nuts. I hate them all. Ugh. Um, they're so... Ugh. Well, so uh, Crystal is the most interesting in this story because uh, Crystal's got her marriage to Ronan. How are you feeling about that romance? Because that, to me, is like a major selling point of this entire saga. I think it's developing really interestingly and well. Because it's not the usual, you can feel the the respect between the two of them and also that this tension between, well, it was an arranged marriage and I didn't really want to do it. And Ronan was a lot more into it just because I think that's his sense of duty. He's like, he goes all in on whatever it is, even if whatever it is was enacting Cree justice, which was pretty shitty. And, you know, there was all that tension of, does Crystal actually care about Ronan, even though Ronan like clearly wanted to care? And of course she does, and she grows to to really like him, and Ronan seems to also have grown to actually really like Crystal. It's more than just this political marriage, even though they both are still treating it as if it is just a political marriage. And I really like that tension. They, they get incredibly flirty in these issues, but what I like is that their flirting is just like weirdly formal and polite, as if th- mm-hmm. the, um, the political origins of their wedding became like an inside joke to them as a couple. Yeah, that's the vibe it gives me because they're he's just, they're just always uh, like my affection for you uh, only grows, my lady. And then she just says, uh, uh, sir, to learn that you're a gentleman uh, is as great a privilege as it is to fight beside you. And they're just like this all the fucking time. And I think it's so much fun. It is. It's great. 
like I said, the the best part of this is Crystal. And I guess Maximus. Maximus is fun too. But everyone else is just frustrating and annoying and pretty one note. Yeah, like, so, Gor- so Gor- Gorgon, his whole thing is smash and grab. He's he's basically the Hulk, but with less angst. He kind of reminds me of like a unfunny Hercules because part of his thing is that he's like a goof who always runs into battle uh, kind of foolhardily. Yeah, and we even get Hercules, and he's so much better. Yeah, later when Charles Soule writes the, his run of Inhumans, which I think is quite good. Mm-hmm. He makes Gorgon like kind of that like nice grizzled guy who will like watch your back in the mosh pit at the heavy metal show. Mm-hmm. That's the vibe he gives Gorgon, like a like a surprisingly sweet biker is his personality. Gotcha. And I think that it, it maps on really well to these issues of Gorgon. And I don't know if you can kind of keep that in mind with the characterization that makes him read a little better, at least for me. Yeah, I I never. I mean, I did. I dislike Gorgon, but mostly because his entire thing is just a lot of screaming. Yeah, he doesn't really do that much. And the so the basic premise of this miniseries, we start with you know Blastar's forces invading and Medusa sending out the Royal Guard to take him down to kind of you know save save everyone and show yes the Inhumans can actually protect you guys. We did just have this horrible war, but you know we Wait, can, can I do qui- this. Can I quibble? Do it. It's not that Blastar's forces are invading, because I think an important part of the vibe of this series is that this is supposed to be representing, like, a more peacetime conflict. Mm -hmm. So it's just, like, this is the equivalent of, like, one loony guy is running through the street in his underwear. It's like like a border dispute. But but it's, like, not even a border dispute. At no point is anybody, like, really worried that there's going to be any sort of consequences. It's just like, ah, go grab that guy before somebody gets hurt. (laughs) It's, like, the, the level of urgency. If I can kind of jump to the end a little bit, like my overall mm-hmm. review of this, because I think that might have to do with how we talk about the way the plot unfolds, is that yeah. um, every one of these issues ends with a great last page reveal. And then the next issue, you find out that it's it, for some somehow it was faked. That person isn't who they seem to be, or um, that person is really working for somebody else. And the twist comes so fast without any room to breathe that you never get used to one of them like – Except for, like, the Mighty Avengers showing up in the first issue. And then Medusa's like, what? And then we find out why the Mighty Avengers are here, kind of. But you also find out why it's such a problem. And that was the... I think that was the only issue that... It wasn't really a twist at the end, and it's more of a complication. Yeah, which I think works... uh, That's a great... Abnett Lenning's complications are very fun and madcap, and their twists are usually kind of messy. Yeah. So I like yeah. their um, their escalations a lot better than I like their twisty twists. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, have you ever read the rung of Mighty Avengers that this team no. is from? No, and that's why I was so confused. It is by Dan Slott, and I love this run of Avengers. It's got a, it's a really fun little silly arcs mm-hmm. with uh, Hank Pym as the Wasp. Yeah, which, alrighty, alrighty, Hank. It's good. It's the most likable Hank Pym has ever been written. Oh, wow. That surprises me. I really, I really like that Dan Slott run. Yeah, the Mighty Avengers showing up is really fun. I like that uh, Cassie Lang is on the team. Hercules is just, like, always a delight. U.S. Mm-hmm. Agent is such a dick. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I I, mean, I had fun with them. I had the most fun with Hercules showing up and then also, um, oh, what was his face? Quicksilver, actually. Oh, I enjoy, yeah. I enjoyed that, uh, that tension that he brings to the... Ronin crystal dynamic it's, it's never it doesn't really go anywhere very fast 
for Quicksilver. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it, it has just enough there that it kind of pushes their, their relationship along in, in a direction it was already going. Yeah, and actually having these more familiar characters or, you know, uh, ostensibly familiar characters comment on the changes in the inhuman status quo, I think does a great job at selling what the story is about now. Mm-hmm. And I also think that this um, this story, one of the things that worked about it that I think often doesn't work with the Inhumans mm-hmm. is this story positions them at the top. And I um, and a lot of stories try to make the Inhumans into the X-Men or the mutants where they're on the run, people are persecuting them, uh, they're always on their back heel and they're distrusted. Yeah. And what I like here is they're still mistrusted, but they have ultimate authority. Like when the Avengers show up, the Avengers are in the wrong and under Inhumans' jurisdiction, and they get to rule. And I think since the Inhumans is about often the the, the burden of the responsibility of rulership, and it's about like a royal family and stuff, it's mm-hmm. weird to be like, they're a royal family, but they're in exile and everybody hates them, and they actually are super dirt poor. Like I, I feel like you can't have your cake and eat it too that way. Yeah, no. Especially not, not here. I'm Well, okay. Well, that's why this we, works for me, is because yeah. here they are in charge, and everyone's like respecting their authority, and it's about them trying to deal with that. And I think that makes much more sense for an Inhuman story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but that's also why I think whenever we, as we're getting a lot of the, I think Hebna and Lanning don't really know how to handle a lot of the like political court intrigue, which sucks to say, but I was so bored every time we cut back to like whatever the court drama was i'm like none of these characters are likable in any interesting way nothing that they're arguing for makes me you know pick a side i just want to slap all of them and go what are you doing yeah none of the perspectives feel like they you never get the sense that abnett lanning uh, respects the perspectives of any of these characters yeah yeah, uh, I even had in my notes, I'm like, see, this is how you know they suck. They're getting along with, with Pim in a Richards kind of way. <laughs> um, I want to give some props to... I, who drew these issues? My um, my trade doesn't specify, but... They, the... This issue... So the first couple issues were drawn by... Uh, not Wellington Alves. By Pablo you said, Romandi? You said the names. Yeah, Pablo, pa- Pablo Romandi did most of them. Uh, Wellington Alves, I think, did the third issue, maybe? Third and fourth issue. Uh, and Tim Seeley did some some penciling and, and whatnot. Yeah, no, Wellington Alves did the third issue, uh, and Seeley did some art in the fifth issue. But for the most part, it's Pablo Romandi. I just wanted to say that Pablo Ramondi uh, does great costume design. Uh, Medusa's ruffles are so on point, but man, does his face work a little uncanny. Oh, yeah. I, I was looking at some of these people. I'm like, oh, that's just a person. His Quicksilver face upsets me. <laughs> the Whoever that Cree scientist was, that guy upsets me. Yeah. I look at him and I go, that's that's just some dude you painted blue. And it continues. Like, Wellington Elves, I've does as much as he can with it but it still it still feels like that as well yeah uh what i was trying to say earlier though is so at one point it seems like black bolts come back from the dead but then it turns out it's not really black bolt and then it turns out that that's really because it was a plan by maximus who's finally gone mad but then it turns out that it wasn't really maximus because he was working for medusa all along and it just feels like a lot of stuff happening like if there was a little bit of room to breathe where everybody really had a chance to deal with their feelings about being betrayed by Maximus once again, 
Mm-hmm. That then I, I would have been into it, and then if, once we found out that really actually it was Medusa all along, that could have felt like something. But because none of these ever had a chance to develop, it's just a series of meaningless events uh, where only the concluding one has any impact, which is the Medusa being evil all along. Yeah, and like every time they talked about Maximus, you know, being mad again, I'm like, but he's always kind of, like this isn't madness. This is just regular old he wants to be a ruler stuff like i don't get i I didn't get all of their fretting over you know oh no he's gone evil again he's always been like this he's just he was he's just mostly aligned with everyone and you know you kind of seeded and gave him the idea that oh maybe he should be king now yeah, but they don't develop that either way. They don't have him like clearly being as a red herring, I guess in this case, clearly being lustful for the throne, or clearly being like, no, I, I really don't want the throne. You've given me enough toys, and we've got all this society. I'm content. Yeah, and then the whole thing ends with actually Medusa is commanding all the Inhumans to just she's just like being a supervillain and like a pretty successful supervillain. Yeah, um, and it's so that she can you know prove to the creature society that they are able to protect them from threats even though most of the threats were her making them up yeah which um sure which made me really feel like the rug was pulled out from under me but that being said i'm kind of interested in that story moving forward about medusa's like a mad queen and maximus is delighted to like support her in this and then her the three cousin warriors are all like uh we're sworn to the throne but this is fucked up and crystal and ronan being the voices of reason who are trying to uh talk medusa down yeah but that's not that's not the story that's even hinted or seeded at well that's what this that's the story that i feel like this ends that's that's where we leave this miniseries and i'm like that sounds great this was five issues it's like a netflix the first season of any netflix show where you get an entire pilot stretched over like 13 episodes (laughs) and then you're like yeah yeah i want to watch the show that you introduced in the season one finale that's the show i came here to watch not all this uh this track setting yeah and yeah that I don't really have much else to say on everything that happened before other than Raven kind of gets done dirty. If we're not the first time. If we're not the first time. So I I know we've kind of jumped around on this one instead of summarizing it. It's because really not a lot happens. Well, the Uh, plot doesn't matter. The the character work is good. There's some fun scenes. There's some good artwork of uh, frogmen jumping around. (laughs) But like uh, the... The part where Black Bolt comes back, there's no tension. You're not just like, oh, word, Black Bolt's alive? Oh, I guess he's not. Yeah. But the important part is when we find out when Triton and Raven and crew go, after they found that out, they come back, and Raven and everyone starts mutating. And <laughs> turns out all of the Kree are able to evolve, question mark, question mark, question mark, you know, the whole... You know, they've stagnated in their evolution or whatever. Uh, but the the evolution is into becoming you know, essentially servants of the many angled ones. Uh, they become giant squid, starfish, beasts, uh, and Triton has to kill them all. Real sad. Uh, I feel yeah. I, I feel bad for Raven. The monster design is terrifying. Tim Seeley does a fantastic job of that. I guess that's why that's why we pay him the big bucks for that, right? Yeah. But it gives, I guess, it gives Medusa finally an excuse to, to get off off her butt and actually 
do something on her own. It's basically it. It really is the Thanos taking the taking the gauntlet in the MCU, going, "I guess I'll do it myself." <laughs> That's really what this moment had for me. It's not like triumphant Medusa, or even like, "Oh no, Medusa." It's just like, "Well, I guess it's my turn to do something." Oh, see, I kind of thought it ended with her. I I felt it ended on a very villainous note for her. I mean, she's wearing that like very. She looks like she's wearing um, uh, Satana's wardrobe, but with like steel boots. Yeah. Well, the issue ends on that. On that, but just the image of her descending. I was like, all right, cool. We already know that she's you know evil or whatever. Thanks for for emphasizing it through the the wardrobe and the V neck that's so deep cut, it goes past her belly button. Yep, that's that's the that's the Satana special, as we call it in the six one six. That's how you know they're evil. Early satanic. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, even more inexplicable is Realm of Kings, <laughs> son of Hulk. I do we have to summarize this one? Because I don't have, you know we don't, but we, I want I want to try to do a a brief overview summary of the whole thing all at once. I would double dare you to try doing that but before you do i just want to mention yes. that realm of king song of halt was written by scott reed illustrated by miguel munera uh inked by terry pallet colored by veronica gandini and lettered by Fishbrain. Fishbrain. i don't know who that is but i love the name he wanted me to be on this podcast saying letter by Fishbrain," and he got his wish <laughs> success all right elias can you summarize realm of king son of hulk in like two sentences no, but How I many sentences? maybe do it in a, parag- or a paragraph okay. or two. Let's try it. So we have the son of Hulk, Hero Kala, who is dragged away from his, you know, something with, I, I think it's his girlfriend or the person he wants to date but doesn't, uh, and her father, Axeman Bone, and is dragged off into the microverse onto a planet called Kai by the princess of this world who had been dethroned. Hulk is a previ- previously apparently was in the microverse, did something on this planet, uh, and she's trying to summon him, but instead summons the sun. There's this prophecy where the sun's going to do something, and then there's also the Micronauts who are arrived along with one Death's Head, and something about the Enigma Force killing what's his face Arcturius one of the Micronauts and then they all end up coming to blows on the planet Kai as Hirokala basically is a supervillain trying to take over everything and absorb the old power uh, and yeah everything kind of explodes by the end nothing really happens there's a wave that resets the Micronaut history but Hirokala escapes and therefore he's not destroyed by this and the prophecy still might happen and then there's the enigma force nullifier which god knows what that is yeah none of that uh clarified anything for me yeah and i still don't know why the fuck it was tied into realm of kings like none of the cancerverse stuff shows up not even scar who was part of war of kings shows up they just kind of like hint at it nothing it's i yeah yeah, i'm not gonna be able to uh shed any insight on that stuff so I definitely read these issues when they were coming out, like, in issues. This was some of the earliest Marvel comics I was collecting. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And but going back when I saw there was a Realm of Kings Son of Hulk story, I was like, oh, cool. I remember that uh, there was a character named Scar and he looked like Hulk crossed with Conan the Barbarian. And I always thought that was like a fun idea that Hulk had an alien uh, barbarian son. And yeah. I figured that's what who was going to be here. I Same. forgot that Scar had a boring, shitty brother named Hiro Kala who has a dumb half hood <laughs> and just like this deal that's simultaneously so complicated and nothing just it's like yeah. all these names of all these alien princesses. And again, I know we're going for a John Carter of Mars vibe, princesses of Mars. And I know mm-hmm. that this is um, that the Hulk uh, had a famous story where he uh, romanced Princess Jarella in the microverse in the 70s. Like I knew all that stuff and none of that can make me care about this story either. Yeah. And at one point there's like a tease where we're going to get the Galactus as Hero Kala's herald. But even that amounts to nothing. Like, it's a nothing flash forward. I do have to say this. Reading the comic, Scott Reed captured what it feels like to read, like, an 80s space fantasy. Like, like space sword and sorcery book. He, he captured the feeling and the art. You know, it, it really feels like it just kind of fell out of that era and got like Chronicles of Amber? One. Like a Robert Zelanzi type thing? Yeah. But they didn't make any of the ideas in it interesting. Yeah. Or and, comprehensible. And it's just such a bummer to me that um, I, I – so my prediction when – because the question is like what the hell is this? What is going on? Mm-hmm. My prediction is that um, – so all of these stories, the whole Annihilation saga was all of the space stuff that Abnett and Lenning was like allowed to use because so much of it was considered like this, like too complicated, too boring. People wouldn't get into it. Mm-hmm. And I think the one recent, like, outer space sci-fi hit that Marvel had in their comics in continuity at this time was Planet Hulk. Yeah. Which, to this day, pre-Immortal Hulk, I feel like Planet Hulk was the one that uh, people always pointed to. Like, if you read one Hulk story, that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I feel – I really understand that they were like, well, let's take a bunch of characters and elements and dangling threads that were left over from Planet Hulk and, like, maybe fold them back into this whole space opera that we're trying to weave here. But, like, man, does this not leave an impact? Uh, Hero Kala doesn't meet any other characters we care about. He doesn't interact with the Cancerverse guys. And I'm not that sold on him as a protagonist. Uh, if you go uh, – Jeff Parker wrote a bunch of comics at this time with Scar in them. Mm-hmm. And Jeff Parker's Scar is really fun. You'll want to read about this, like – awful teenager barbarian hulk with a sword who just like wants to steal a hundred slurpees from 7-eleven and kill a bunch of dragons <laughs> that sounds like fun that sounds so much more interesting than what's going on here and i actually compared this that because i'm like the comic feels so ominous throughout the entire thing it never really pays off with any of the but the feeling is preserved i'm like it, and it reads like early grendel uh-huh, yeah. But again, but not, like, I like all the early Grendel stuff. I'm not I did a, not I, like I, this. I know, I know Grendel by reputation and from you. Yeah, but that was also, like, 80s, very, very serious, very dark. And... Yeah, and I didn't mind the, that tone. I could kind of, like, yeah. and Hirokala being, like, the, the runt of the litter, puny son of the Hulk, who's kind of like a creepy warlock, anti-hero, roguish type. Yeah, I think could whoever, have been something. Yeah, 
it could have been something. I think they just overcomplicated the story by dragging in so many different elements. If they didn't have the Micronauts faffing about with the the Enigma Force and and the Enigma Force multiplier, and then this prophecy that supposedly happened before this, it's just it's way too much happening in a four issue mini series about characters we barely even care about and haven't been given any reason to buy into it. Yeah, I th- I feel like this is uh, an incredible missed opportunity. I'm sure yeah. uh, there's people who are Micronauts fans who might feel a little bit differently, but um, it's a shame because it, it could any one of these elements could have been the focus, and it could have been great. Yeah, I mean we got Axemen Bone, so it's not all bad. Right, Axemen Bone was pretty cool. <laughs> and with that, we will take a break, and when we come back, it's time for Nova and the Guardians. Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach. And I'm Walter. Each month, we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster, A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz Anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. And welcome back. We are here at Make Mine Multiversity, bringing you the hottest space gossip this side of the Cree lar Yeah, well, things are about to really uh, heat up closer to the fault because we are talking about uh, Nova issues, uh, what is it, 32 to 35? No, 29 to 31. 29 to 31? Yeah, 32 to 30, 35, 36 is next time. Uh, Yeah, I I wrote the wrong ones, but I read the right ones assuredly. These issues were (laughs) uh, written by Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, illustrated by Kevin Sharp and Andrea DeVito, Inked by Nelson Pereira and Andrea DeVito, colored by Bruno Hang, and lettered by VCs Corey Petit. Elias, you have been enjoying Nova, I think, more than almost any series or any other part of this read. How did these issues of Nova hold up for you? They were a lot of fun. I It was nice to have something that was just kind of low stakes. Like, you've got high stakes, but it, it, it moved the f- story forward, but... For the most part, it was just kind of a, a fun little two-issue aside and then, then a one-issue kind of, I guess, lead-up to whatever's coming next. Um, kind of the, the teaser for, for the the final stretch of Nova. But this was this was nice. It was... If it reminded me of the book I thought we were going to get after Conquest. Yeah, because... Uh, so last issue, we ended with uh, the fault opened up and then, like, a Nova ship flew out. And that was a great cliffhanger. Yeah. And so they go to explore the Nova ship. It's kind of derelict. It's kind of empty. Uh, and it's... Uh, Robbie gets left behind because... You know, he has to man the ship. And it's Fractor, Morrow, and Irani. With so you're pretty rich... you're you're like committed to these new Nova guys. You like you like this team. I like this team. I like that they have expanded the I'm a big fan of supporting casts in these superhero books. And Marvel and DC seem committed to not having them, to not having just like a general supporting cast. I, you like uh, like in Spider Man, you like having mm-hmm. like the Daily Bugle staff and like yeah. uh, his, his circle of friends. Yeah, and uh, like a lot of the like whenever like Batman, I really liked the the new Gotham era of Batman and Detective Comics because you have all of these additional 
supports characters you've got all these people around them i love the jason aaron thor run we don't have as big a support cast but like solomon Roz is there and, and keeps showing up in interesting ways we have lady sif that shows up every so often we've got heimdall you've got people that are outside of just thor and whoever he's beating up today and you get to check in with them you get to kind of have just this additional world that makes it feel bigger than just the one character and that's what I think having these characters do sure it was a lot of Nova kind of doing whatever it was but his whole deal was everyone is dead and he feels sad <laughs> and now yeah. he's starting to get over that yeah and one of the things I like about these uh these first two issues is that they're establishing just like a new character who ends up uh, filling uh, just such a logical role because it turns out that this derelict Nova ship belonged to this like weird lizard guy named Zanphilo. <laughs> yeah, Zanphilo. Uh-huh. And Zanphilo Zan was uh, doing his Nova job a while back. He tripped through a rift, and now he fell through time and space, and he uh, popped out the fault, not knowing like how long he's been gone or what's been happening. He's also got uh, three arms. <laughs> which is quite a weird look. Yeah, it is. And it's not in the normal way of, you know, three arms, you know, in three distinct places. No, it's he's got two arms in the places you'd think he'd have arms, and then he has an additional arm kind of grafted on top of one of those arms at the shoulder. Yeah, one of them's a double arm. Yeah, it looks kind of silly, but thankfully the artist's sell it yeah and he explains the backstory behind the extra arm and it's like silly but whatever it's a comic book and he, it's i definitely would remember that silhouette yeah it's enough that you you accept it you've got your reason and you never have to think about it again <laughs> yeah and um uh by the end of the story uh nova's gonna make uh Zanphilo, like his uh his sergeant at arms and that's such a fun idea that he like met this lost veteran who's now gonna help him whip the supporting cast into shape i just i was just like yes that's what was missing. Yep. Uh, these Green Lantern Corps needed their Kilowog or whatever. <laughs> exactly. So they meet him. We've got the, you know, everyone's kind of discussing what he's been doing. Uh, and back on New Xandar, we've got a lot of discussions of because the, the world mind is kind of being taken down by some virus that beamed back up uh, via the scan it was doing of the ship. And so, you know, they're trying to figure out who that is. We've still got this mysterious figure that was hovering outside of the ship. And at first you think, I thought maybe it was, uh, why am I blanking on his name? Lizard guy. Are you talking about my, my pal Zanphilo? Yeah, Zanphilo. But the silhouette is all wrong. He only has two arms. So who is this this person that was hiding outside of the ship? We find out his name was Starstalker. And he's got this really fun 70s space he looks he looks like um not blastar uh i mean he looks like a 70s space swashbuckler i think maybe he looks like a corsair a little bit yeah a little bit he kind of he reminds me a little bit of the the star lord uniform <laughs> not not like in any way that actually resembles it but that era of kind of silly space stuff and turns out Starstalker had taken out Fractor on the on the deck and replaced her while they were walking through the ship in order to get closer because he wants the cargo, the person that was kind of stuck on the on the ship. And most of the rest of the issue is kind of them, you know, duking it out, battling, getting angry at each other and trying to figure out, you know, who is this uh, prisoner and why does Swashbuckler or, or Starstalker want him? Starstalker 
totally uh, is like I love swashbuckling characters, and I love when you come in with a cape and you swing on a chandelier and you demand uh, the bounty or whatever. Mm-hmm. Starstalker was a tryhard. I did not care for this dude at all. Yeah, I mean he's he's a big old he's a bit of bit of a nothing. He's very he's very much a stock cookie cutter character, and I think that's kind of the point. Especially when when we find out that he's literally a stock cookie cutter construct. Yeah, the the arc is named after him, and you kind of get the feeling that they they want to do something with his persona. I feel like it would have worked better if he was like falling on his face and slipping on banana peels. Yeah, I, it would have been much, It would have been a lot more fun rather than him being the the serious kind of like really channeling the energy of the protagonist role inside this other story where where he just looks like a dick. Yeah, and just, like, his one-liners weren't that cute, and uh, he just did this, like, smarmy thing, but never got any comeuppance for it. Yeah. So I just was, like, unpleasant to read about, and then at the end, when it turns out he's a construct, you're just like, oh, and I guess uh, (laughs) it didn't matter. I liked him as kind of a foil of something for the Nova guys to play off of. He was, like, a dilemma that caused them to have interesting interactions with each other. Yeah. Um, and was like a, you know, it was, I liked having a little reason to have a conflict for uh, Rich and Zanphilo to learn to trust each other. Mm-hmm. And it kept them on the ship long enough in order to be attacked by the mindless ones that were mutated by neutron star and then there's a mindless moment just with an exposed brain, which <laughs> so I, was gonna say, I so... couldn't stop giggling about. So this is something I think Abnett Lanning do so great, which is that, um, uh, especially in the Bendis era, but in a lot of eras of the Guardians comics, um, there's you can feel like the the writers are tearing their hair out, and they're like, "How can I make people care about these characters when they have no connection to the Earth characters?" And they so they always like are like, "I guess uh, Iron Man is hanging out with them or whatever," and it makes the mm-hmm. universe feel really small and um, and takes away a lot of what makes it unique. And yeah. then Abnett and Lenin, like, effortlessly are just like, yeah, you know what? Mindless ones are, for, like, a magical monster, and they exist everywhere in the universe, and different cultures have different names for them, and they suck, and we all have to deal with it sometimes. Sometimes your planet just gets invaded by mindless ones. Yep. And in this case, eventually, Ego gets invaded by them. Yeah, so then that's the other uh, thread that's going through here, is Ego is waking back up again. And this one was played a little bit weird because it kind of – I didn't notice it was happening at first, and then I really noticed it was happening. And then it happened for, like, too long because there was a while where these Ego drones, which were tiny versions of Ego, were flying mm-hmm. around inside of him. And all the Nova guys were just, like, swatting them away like this was, like, an annoying pest infestation. Mm-hmm. But you never get the impression that they're worried or in danger or anything. It's They're just like, oh, man, Ego's waking up. And now we have, it's harder to do our job because all the consoles are being swarmed by little Egos. Yeah. I, I had a lot of fun with that. I thought I thought that was fun. Yeah, it, Not I much just... more to it other than they needed to resolve the Ego thing. And this was probably the quickest way of, of just ripping the Band-Aid off and be like, well, Ego's gone now. Bye. Well, and so they jump to uh, Zanphilo's ship, but I do love, like you said, the solution of they beam all the mindless ones into Ego, and then Ego's like, word? And he gets so mad that he has to, like, go leave to, I guess, pick the mindless ones out of his head one by one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but that was a fun way to defeat uh, Ego that I'd never seen before. Yeah. I haven't seen that much Ego defeating, so it's always fun to, to see him kind of get his comeuppance. Well, yeah, he's really selfish. Oh, yeah. That's kind of his whole deal and then what Mm -hmm. uh not as selfish as is it his daughter his niece who's literally named id the selfish moon (laughs) id the selfish moon is 
Does Ego have an older brother just called Super Ego? I do not know. So, um, Ego the self it, it, the Selfish Moon only showed up in uh, three issues of Deadpool, which for some reason I read. I mean, I, I would love to see Id the Selfish Moon reappear. Yeah, Marvel, if you're hilarious. out there, we are hereby calling on you to bring back Id the Selfish Moon, an uh, underrated character from Give it a mini three series, issues 2021. of Dan Way's Deadpool, which was weirdly wow. my favorite Dan Way comic ever written, bar none. I don't think Dan Way has ever written any good comic that was outside of that Deadpool series. Oof. Brutal. But I like a bunch of that Deadpool series. Well, before we get start falling back into, into comics we don't like, <laughs> we've got one more comic in the Nova series that we do like, or at least I liked. I thought you'd love it because it was just all Darkhawk all the time. It's all Darkhawk all the time. It's kind of the aftermath of Darkhawk, well, I guess Razor, evil Darkhawk, killing uh, Emp- uh, Empress Lalandra. And, yeah, it's just the Nova Corps and Rich kind of hunting him down. But not even hunting. Rich is just like, I got to talk to him. Got to see what's up. Uh, we kind of get the the check-in for anyone that didn't read the uh, Ascension series. That Darkhawk has new powers. And that he's on the run. And because he's on the run, he doesn't really... He's just trying to shake Richard off. And then bef- right before Richard is about to kind of bite the dust under some... <laughs> some crashed crystals he's like oh shit it's rich (laughs) and then rich blasts him and he's like well i would have started talking if you hadn't tried to attack me and they kind of do the superhero fight thing which is always a lot of fun well and i also i love uh, that the dynamic the usually usually the dynamic is like two superheroes are both here to stop the villain but then they like have a misunderstanding and punch each other Mm -hmm. but i like that one of these superheroes is on the side of the law and one of them is uh running from the law Mm -hmm. it's a real justified we used to dig coal together thing where like uh they have all the reason to be friends and it's just like the circumstance of this galactic society is tearing us apart and there's not a second where rich is like i'm gonna have to bring him in rich is just like no way if my friend chris powell is out there it's been a huge misunderstanding (laughs) clearly he couldn't have done this but i'm still gonna i'll be the one to talk him out talk him down see what's up and you're so right you're so right about Darkhawk vibes being the coolest because like uh when Nova's fighting, um, I don't know, like, guys from the Negative Zone, he's always fighting them on, like, weird Badlands planets. Mm-hmm. But if you're fighting Darkhawk, you got to go to, like, the weird crystal world where there's all these white crystals that are hiding these, like, ruined cathedrals that are goth as hell. Right? Darkhawk vibes are just the coolest. I, I never, I don't know why I never saw it before. Thank you, Elias, for making me a Darkhawk believer. You're welcome. <laughs> I I really liked how the issue kind of opens as a lot of these issues kind of have with a flashback that didn't exist before to Richard and whoever talking, kind of giving a little bit more context to whatever is going to happen next. I like when they do that well and they keep it short. Like it gives you just enough to be like, okay, here's the here's the the emotional through line for the episode. It's kind of like when when in psych at the beginning of every episode or most every episode, there'd be a flashback to his childhood where he learned some skill and that skill would come in hand during the episode or some lesson or whatever. I enjoy that kind of thing with a cold open. I know not everyone does, but he goes, he fun. takes down. I had fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. He takes down a, a rich or a rich takes down. Uh, oh God. Chris takes down dark Hawk. And then they, you know, they, they talk it out. He's like, I didn't do it. Clearly, here's all the things. I'll fill you in in a minute. And then they're attacked by evil planet roots. 
and they have to work together, even though it's not a begrudging work together, but they have to work together before Rich can get the whole story. And then there are a whole bunch of Cree they have to save because they're Cree archaeologists and because they're Cree archaeologists, one guy's an idiot and just grabs some random crystal that's glowing because it's glowing and he turns into another another uh, razor, another, another, another raptor. He blasts Rich. Rich kind of punches Chris and thankfully that literally only lasts one page and he's like wait 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 look at the color of the crystal it couldn't have been me there are two of me look behind you uh, I have to admit I was a little confused too I was like uh, oh no Chris he got possessed and then I was like oh there are two of them yeah I guess because I, I remembered the tree and I know later I'm like oh there are a lot more of these crystals out there so clearly it can't be I Chris. I just got got for no reason. Yeah, it happens. I mean, they did they did that to hopefully get some people. And in between, we had been cutting back to, uh, God, Lizard Man. Why am I? F- My man Zan Philo. Philo, God. What? I don't know why I can't remember his name. Uh, but Philo is training them. We get some fun use of the gravimatric powers. And then at the end, we cut back to them kind of being like with World Minds saying her catchphrase and then the planet blows up and i guess rich is just dead now and we won't find out until next time i wrote rich is lost in a rift again <laughs> I, I yeah i guess that's true i guess it is an again kind of moment and i, I my issue uh, had the teaser next the riddle of the sphinx and i yep. remember what that is that i'm rolling my eyes it's very silly i cannot wait i have no idea what's going to be coming and I'm, I'm really excited to see that it's like weirder and stupider than you think but yes. i think you'll yeah i about to say but you'll find some redeeming uh, love for it i'm sure yes love weird stupid space stuff as long as it's not boring. Yeah, and I really like these Guardians issues. I thought that two-parter was pretty fun, despite my mild criticism of it. I thought the Darkhawk one was even better because Darkhawk vibes are so good. And you mean Darkhawk... the Nova issues? <laughs> the Dark the Darkhawk issue of Nova. I mean, yeah, no, no, but you said the Guardians issues. We're not oh, there yes. yet. I mean the the Nova issues. Um, I like the dichotomy between Rich and Chris so much, where um, Rich is like the kid who uh, joined the army and is like real. Uh, stuck up and follows the rules and chris is like uh just like a complete mess and doesn't have his life together and is constantly getting into trouble yeah that, that's a fun friendship um and conflict between them uh but as much as i like that issue so much i loved the, these guardians issues they are really good i have my problems with them yeah i also have uh i wrote a feminist masterpiece this is not Yes. Uh, although my first my first note is we get a we get a bit of a summary of what happened with with the the Magus and all that uh, because Moon Dragon is having trauma dreams, and I find out that Cosmo is dead. I did not know Cosmo died too. Yeah, you miss Cosmo. Uh, he. He gets hit, and there's plausible deniability. You're like, oh, maybe he's okay. No, no. I am um, mad. I am angry and mad. Yeah, we killed off a whole lot of Guardians, including Cosmo and Major Victory. And uh, who else did we kill off? Uh, Gamera, Mantis. Mantis yeah, Gamora, Adam we, Warlock. Um, yeah, Warlock sl- died slash was the Magus. Yeah. And I remember I remember um, the first time I read these Guardians issues, all this like lesbian angst where they keep on dying and then the other one dies and then they get revived and they keep on like chasing each other like that. Mm-hmm. I remember that really landing for me the first time I read it, and I'm realizing now, this is my lesson here, is 
when I read it, that was like my first time seeing an angsty lesbian superhero story like this. Mm-hmm. And I found it so exciting. And now I realize that all lesbian fantasy superhero stories like this, of course, are cycles where they tragically die and then they rescue the other one from the jaws of death and then the other one dies. That's just like how this goes. And you, if you keep an eye out, you start noticing the pattern after a while. But when you're a 19-year-old kid reading a story like this for the first time, you might not know yet. And so the first time you read it, you're like, what? No, it's good. And I think that's a funny thing about these sorts of critiques that are based at looking at a story in like a wider cultural context. Mm-hmm. Is sometimes we have this expectation that people have spotted the patterns as much as we have, but sometimes people just aren't that well read. As I wasn't the first time I read this. And now I'm reading it again. I'm like, oh, no, this is uh... a... <laughs> oh, yeah. That, that's kind of my thought, and that's definitely, if I go back to a bunch of stuff that I liked that I have not read in a long time, I am almost certainly going to be feeling that. But, oh, oh my god, I just, oh, Moondra, poor Moondragon. Yeah, I Moondragon also gotta and say- they just have just such a, such a garbage cycle in this in this series even though i think i think abner and lanning do do a really good job of selling like the the drama and all of it because it, they aren't completely indiscriminate with it they they treat the female characters i think a lot worse like they they die more often and are kind of used in this motivating way more often but guardians has always kind of been a series where horrible things happen to these people all of them well this is my first exposure to these characters, probably your first, like, major exposure to these characters. Yeah. And it makes you like them. Like, they don't write them in this way where you're like, oh, who would ever want to read about Moondragon and Philovel? Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, it's not creative yeah. enough to um, think of something interesting to do except for have them pine after each other because they're always losing each other beyond the bounds of death and tragedy. Yeah. It also doesn't help that um, Moondragon comes out and she's like, I'm ready to join the team. Oh, my God, the costume. Yeah, and then her costume oh is like yeah, so she's wearing this like one piece swimsuit that turns into like a whole long sleeve jacket thing that matches mm-hmm. the guardian's uniform with uh, knee high boots. It's like a. It's a I, look. I think I am very gracious with how I uh, assess these dated superhero costumes on female characters. Like, I think that there's a lot of artists who can't draw Gamora's weird swimsuit thing very well but i don't think that the idea is inherently like out of character or like an mm-hmm. unappealing visual but like oh this is so unappealing this moon dragon swimsuit yeah it's the whole thing from the colors to the the belt the belt gets me the belt continues to get me why 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 do this and then also have the belt yeah it's like a the real... whole thing it's a look but it's <laughs> yeah and and, it, and it's like a it's a page turn reveal and you turn it and you're just like oh no it, and, it's not a good surprise and when you look when you look at it the framing kind of puts the the crotch right in the middle like, yeah it really right... draws the eye like a yeah. like an arrow it's it's a very unfortunate costume that i i don't think I think is is more tactfully drawn in every other panel, and then she gets this big this big cape that kind of covers most of it, so it's a moot point anyway. Yeah, not a not a good look. No. But so this first issue makes it seem like this is going to be about the Guardians exploring the faults, because that's exactly what Rocket and Groot do, and they uh, end up uh, getting chased by a creature out. Yeah, and the creature's pretty nasty. They cut it up. 
they've been swallowed, they survive, and then we get brought to the Nowhere Administrative Council, and the Universal Church of Truth is kicking up a fuss and a stink, and, you know, and the luminals are there, and the luminals suck. Yeah, and, uh... And Moondragon uh, is having visions of the cocoon, the mysterious cocoon we've been seeing throughout everything. And you just, you get this feeling that all the threads are converging, right? Yeah. And we finally figure, like, we're finally figuring out, like, what what was this cocoon? What, what was dealing with it? And we get some nice downtime. We get, and we get some of the stuff that I really wish we got more of. I wish we had more of this just hanging around on the station, dealing with the station people. And we don't really get that because we're always jumping from big thing to big thing to big thing, which I enjoyed. But this is the end of the Guardian series. The, the These are the final issues. And that kind of makes me sad. And I think I'll... We'll talk more about this once we get to the end. But I liked I liked the the little the part where they're sitting in the canteen and the Universal Church of Truth guy shows up and is like, I'm here to proselytize. Yeah, and, you know, and they I'm... get a call and something's going going on down in the uh, in the below decks. They have such a you know who actually it's Jack Flag brings a really nice uh, vibe to their dynamic. Yeah, where uh, Star Lord and Rocket now seem like old buddies and. Uh, and Drax doesn't have very much to say, and neither does Groot. And mm-hmm. then you bring Jack Flagg in, and he's just, like, complaining about everything, or he uh, he's sarcastic or scared of everything that they have to do. And mm-hmm. um, it's just, like, um, it's a nice foil so that those downtime scenes have a little bit more um, bouncing off each other instead of everybody just yeah. agreeing and toasting. Yeah, exactly. It, there's there's tension, but it's not, like, bad tension. It's just you've got a bunch of people in the room, and they have different personalities. Yeah. That's a lot I of mean, fun. Like the, like the movies are supposed to work. Yeah. But before the in the in the council meeting, they were basically debating whether or not the luminals should be allowed access to explore the fault. And the Guardians are like, fine, we can do it together. Uh, And then because the luminals suck, they do it on their own. The luminals very much suck. You will not hear an argument from me. Yeah. And because they they continue to be kind of terrible, uh, they bring back through no fault of their own. But still. Uh, they bring back something from the Cancerverse in what's her name, Super Mega. I uh, whatever. <laughs> they all have whatever. Her, um, Sinoshore is the name of Mass Driver. Oh, Mass Driver, of course. Yeah. Uh, I was just thinking of of Tim Seeley's money shot. I'm like super massive black hole. <laughs> but his real name is Doug Cock. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yes, I'm familiar with that one too. Anyway. But yet another moment of Moondragon being done dirty, she ends up uh, getting pounced oh on by the terrible beast. Oh my and god. So we just get like... Oh my god, it's horrible. There's been a lot of tentacle imagery in this entire arc, and um, a lot, you know, because we're doing Lovecraft stuff. But this is the one where we start getting into like hentai territory, where like uh, she's really getting wrapped up in these tentacles in a pretty pervy way. Yeah, and... It- I think we run the full gamut of kinks in this. We get, yeah. we get, we go from tentacles, and then we get Mpreg, and it's just very uncomfortable. Yeah. So, like, once she gets totally consumed by the tentacles, we do get a page I really like, where um, it's the other six members of the team just all reacting in the uh, testimonial booth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. But I, I do kind of like. I mean, I hate it, but I, I like why she ends up taking the creature inside like i like that it's her choice they're like 
she has the agency in it. It's not just the thing attacked her and now it's in her. Yeah, because um, she was rescuing Sinisher because she's yeah. like, well, I'm a superhero and I, I save people's lives. And Star-Lord's just like, really, though? Th- that person, is that worth it? Like, um, yeah, and it gives her – it makes the choice very strong and it's a strong character moment from Heather of um, – like believing in the superhero credo mm-hmm. uh but then Still the real, super uncomfortable yeah then the, the pregnancy imagery which is what it is once she's uh infected with this being is pretty unnecessary yeah and and, and does not relent and poking ugh. And yeah jarhead just... shows up <laughs> Fucking sh- um, the luminals suck uh, the Luminals do suck. The one thing I want to call attention to is, um, I don't know if you noticed, but Heather in this scene where she's uh, got the monster in her and she's explaining what mm-hmm. she knows, uh, coins mm-hmm. the term Cancerverse. This is the first time we've actually heard that word. Oh, that's good. Um, well, I just know that, that, wor- that the word Cancerverse was so evocative to you that it had somehow stuck in your memory even before you had ever read any of these issues. It did. It did. And I had no idea what the Cancerverse actually was. I thought it was, you know, I mean, I, I figured once we got shown it i'm like oh that's what it is but it's a good term for it and her explanation here again yeah this this really haunted me the first time i read it because um i will find out more in the final arc of this whole story but um it's a world where they keep on saying where uh death has been banished and life has won life has triumphed and life without restriction ends up being like a cancerous tumor and it just grows and grows and grows and grows until it's just tentacles consuming the entire universe Mm-hmm. And that's such a scary idea. I've never heard of oh, anything yeah. like that, and it grossed me out. It super grossed me out. Um, I also made a note of I kind of want to talk about the Universal Church of Truth a little bit because they end up being a pretty big deal in this arc. Yeah. So talk about – I guess talk about them generally. Well, I just feel like the Universal Church of Truth really verges on being a, a good villainous threat without quite getting there. Yeah, yeah, they kind of never quite crossed that threshold, much as I would have loved them to. I like they have um, there's the Grand Matriarch and there's Cardinal Raker and there, there's like a there's a couple of like familiar faces within the organization, mm-hmm. and clearly they're supposed to be about like religious hypocrisy with a lot of like Catholic Church cathedral stylings, mm-hmm. and that's all fine. But the thing about them that I feel like is weird is that. Every arc is just them choosing to worship, like, another being, another god, another prophet, another messiah. Their yeah. belief system is so vague and malleable that every time they bump into somebody who's got, like, vaguely portentous style, they're just like, oh, it must be you, our chosen one, who the prophecy spoke of. And it's just like, dude, get more specific prophecies. <laughs> it, you, you can't be, like, Philavel and Thanos and Adam Warlock and evil Adam Warlock. They can't all be your messiah simultaneously. Yeah, and then this weird, creepy creature from beyond the pale that definitely was trying to kill everyone must be the god. Must just must be. Although I I do like how one of the explanations just like the psychic whatever from it is you know, makes these people susceptible because they're literally always on the verge of trying to always believing in something, but never having really strong convictions about any specific thing. Um. Yeah. It's very, it's very interesting actually that. They have such strong convictions, but about nothing. And I feel like that's the thing that the story fails to take ownership over is like how cartoonish that is, but not unbelievable. It's just like uh, that's a ridiculous type of person. Yeah. But before we not before, but as we learn more about the Universal Church of Truth, you know, we get some some 
decompression between the, the characters trying to figure out, you know, what are they going to do with the thing inside of, uh, inside of Phyla or inside of Moondragon, how she's going to handle it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but then the Universal Church of Truth tried to kidnap her. In addition to Sinashur, who had handcuffed herself to Moondragon because the Luminals just just the worst. Yeah, you can't do anything unless it's like extra and annoying. Yeah, and and in the wor- just the worst possible times. Uh, but they they actually successfully kidnap them because the matriarch uses her magic powers of being pretty. <laughs> To, to knock Drax out and send him kind of into a spiral uh, of it within himself, uh, feeling all of the pain he has ever caused. Great trick. Neat trick. Yeah, it's a great 100%. trick. We get some fun, fun, really dramatic paneling of the matriarch kind of, you know, setting up Phyla to be killed on side of a planet that they're going to be sacrificing. Because, you know, why not? And what's killing me here is um, I think that the the art and the design of the Universal Church of Truth stuff is very effective. It's kind of conveying the vibes they want. But all this mm-hmm. pregnancy stuff just kind of like leaves a bad yeah. taste with it. Yeah. Like the first the first page. Great stuff. And then you turn the page and it's this this splash page, which is beautifully drawn. I love the lighting. But I'm just like I'm so uncomfortable looking at it. And in a way that I don't think they meant it. Maybe not meant it to be, but like it's it shouldn't be. Like this is not the kind of uncomfortable you want someone to be feeling when you're reading, when you're when you're looking at this. You should be scared that the horrible thing is going to be unleashed on the universe. Um, like that. Yeah. That's what that that moment is, because they've been captured by the big bads or whatever. But the guardians come and try to save them in the most flashy way possible, because that's the only way they know how to do things, and they crash nowhere. Into the planet. Now, I gotta say, I love this as, like you said, these are the last official issues of the Guardian series proper. And as, like, a hurrah for this team of Guardians, this was, like, a great Guardians mission. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Especially, I love that uh, throughout the series, they've always insisted that Rocket is a tactical expert. Mm Mm-hmm. And every so often he gets a chance to do that, but it's kind of like a weird... Feature, especially if you're only familiar with him in the movies, where he's um, a real uh, hot-headed, gun-for-hire type who doesn't really think about anything deeply. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his plan to crash nowhere into the Universal Church of Truth is really fun. I like that the plan is called Operation There's Nowhere Like Home. <laughs> Just like five comedy points to Rocket Raccoon, who is yep. a genius. And then I've said this a hundred times, but Abnett Landing writes such a good superhero fight. Every little beat of the fight has a reason for being there. It's always about relationships, so it's uh, usually about a, uh, a hero and another hero um, interacting and teaming up, or a hero and a villain having um, a moment of playing off of each other. My favorite beat of the fight is when um, Jack Flag keeps trying it. Oh. Yeah, trying out new catchphrases, which I don't think are good, but I believe that he thinks they're good. He's trying. I I think my favorite part was the the cutaway to Drax's um why am I Te- blanking with his testimonial thing? Frog, yeah uh, I that was for me the the highlight of that fight I really liked the that beat I especially really liked how he I think it might have been earlier um he he's like he feels bad about letting Cammy down I'm like I haven't thought about Cammy in forever and that. And but then when he starts talking about, it, he's like, "I haven't felt human in a long time." I'm like, "Great job, Abner and Lanning, tying that all together." 
so yeah. good. Such good character stuff. And that's the strength of these testimonials, because it can cut away in the middle of a fight and have this like really quiet, reflective beat. Mm-hmm. And then you can burst back in it, and suddenly it's got renewed meaning. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Battle wraps up. We've got they save Moondragon, and then I can't believe I'm saying this. The Luminals arrive, and it's a triumphant moment. Yeah, I was more excited that um, Star-Lord ends up employing Cosmo's uh, collar trick from Nova yeah. Number 9, which we read earlier in this read-through. Yeah. How did they kidnap Nowhere? Well, they just put everyone inside of the collar in an emergency and then crash Nowhere in. Uh, and when they're brought in front of the Galactic Council, or I guess the, the Nowhere Administrative Council, uh, the Luminals stand by the Guardians. And like, well, they did what they had to do, and if you kick them out, you kick us out. And we know you actually like us more than them and what a wonderful arc for all of this right remember when we met all these guys back in nova number nine in that like haunted ass issue where nova met teamed up with cosmo and he mm-hmm. had to fight the luminals and just like here we all are we've come so far yep it is and it was great fantastic stuff that and they pitch thankfully 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 they get the thing out of phyla they put it in a tube and they throw it back into the vault it's gone. Or, I'm out of Moon Dragon. Yeah, out of, out of Moon Dragon. And you're like, great. Um, we've pretty much resolved the dangling threads. We can now move forward. But then at the end of the issue, it is. Yeah, uh, we, we're teased that Phyla is actually alive. I'm like, how? We saw her very much dead. And then we find out. You want to take it? Oh, just that um, the Magus indeed is alive behind the entire Universal Church of Truth, and that the huge slaughter at the end of the last uh, story was an illusion. And actually, Magus is keeping them all alive in his creepy cathedral. Yup. And this is where the comic lost me. This is where it picks up for me. This is where it gets great. Uh, so <laughs> well, number 23... I didn't mean in terms of whether or not it lost my attention. It lost my... Uh, I could not follow any of the explanation exactly of like how like with the cosmic cube and like how did he save their soul i'm like i don't know what's going on he he, he's evil and he's magical and he did something with time well uh, yeah a couple of things one that explanation is crazy and gets us where we need to go the explanation kind of passed right through me uh two is this where uh, this is where the art style shifts is this where brad walker no brad walker were the previous issues this is wes craig oh right right so this is i always forget that Wes Craig's early art looked like this because he's another one where it's like recognizable but it's so developed I think he's doing he comparing this to the to his first Guardians issues I really like these I love I love the way he's starting to perfect the the small panel approach like he's able to really fit a lot of panels onto each page and make them still distinct and I really like I really like his art here as compared to say or at least in the flashback parts, compared to, like, the first time we met, uh, what's-his-face, the evil, uh, oblivion maelstrom. Yeah. One of the, one of the reasons I think he works so well for these issues is these are, like, could be, like, very dark, upsetting issues, but his cartoony style, uh, makes that feel more like a He-Man cartoon than, like, a Game of Thrones episode. Yeah. Um, which makes them a lot more fun and palatable, because there's, like, a lot of vicious torture. Mm Mm-hmm. But I was going to say, I figured you'd like this because, um, so the Magus' scheme is, like, very convoluted, but it brings us back into Darkhawk territory, because now everyone's in the dungeons in a terrible cathedral, being tortured for their, like, soul energy, and I, um, love the Magus in these issues. He's been kind of, like, um, 
he's been this threat where everyone keeps saying, oh, no, the Magus is coming. So you assume that he's like a big deal. But this is where you see his vibe. And his vibe is like uh, halfware between um, Shang Tsung from Mortal Kombat and Malekith the Accursed from uh, the Jason Aaron comics. (laughs) Right. He's like this like uh, this cackling joker, but he's also this powerful sorcerer who only desires, like, malevolence and pain and darkness, and he wants to drink from jeweled skulls, and... Yeah, so I should probably amend my statement. When I say this is where it lost me, it lost me for, like, three or four pages. I was was just vibing with the art. The story just lost me. And then when we got to the dungeon, I'm like, okay, we're back. Now we're back. Yeah, so this this dungeon scene I loved. Um, You find out that all the guardians who you thought were dead are in the Magus' captive. He's torturing them. And, like, I feel weird to say that I really like the torture scene. Well, because it's it's artfully done. It's interesting to look at. And it's it's not just, oh, I'm going to, you know, we're going to watch someone get beat up for for no reason like either either for for sadistic pleasure or to like sell a point it's over the top but restrained enough that you get how horrible it is without having to sit there for like five pages and watch him beat up someone well and it's not about the the torture techniques or anything but what is scary is that since he used to be adam warlock he has all this intimate knowledge of all of them and so he insults them all in these like really personal ways that end up like exposing things to us the reader about these characters so it ends up just being like a good scene of character development under these like very dark circumstances Mm mm-hmm I also really like that, so we've had this, like, Avatar of Life, Avatar of Death thread going since the beginning of Annihilation, mm-hmm. and now this this ties it all together so elegantly to me, because uh, Adam Warlock was supposed to be the Avatar of Life, but now that he's turned into Magus, he's an evil Avatar of Life, and thus is aligned with the Cancerverse, and that's his whole plan here, he's messing with time, and he's trying to use the Universal Church of Truth to create the fault bring the Cancerverse out and, like, I don't know, merge with, worship with, control the many-angled ones. Yeah, whatever it is. He he just wants them here because power and chaos and fun or whatever. Yeah, and he's a dark sorcerer. Yeah, it's whole vibe. Yeah, so then we cut to my other favorite thing for the Guardians to do, which is Show I, up. I love when the Guardians um, are working security at, like, the Intergalactic Summit. Mm-hmm. I think that's fun because because the Guardians are always like a neutral and kind of widely disliked, mistrusted group of people that weirdly makes them uh, suited to guard everybody because nobody likes them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's fun. We get to check in with a few people. We check in with Crystal. Um, we see the Kree Sentry – or not the Kree Sentry, the Kree Guards. And then your main man, You Blastar. talking my man Blastar? You talking Blastar? King, King Blastar. I didn't forget that he's King Blastar. He's got a really cool outfit. Yeah, he's got a great outfit. Way to go, Wes Craig. And uh, Star-Lord is, like, is so mad to see him. And then I, this is so cool that there's a sniper standing on space wreckage looking through a scope from like high orbit. Mm-hmm. Come on, that's great sci-fi BS. It is, and Bug is up there kind of too having to keep watch, and he's just freezing his butt off. But he's so far down that he can't see, you know, the sniper from space. Uh, yeah, and, and and we're simultaneously cutting with this, like, sniper attack back to the um, Adam Magus dungeon torture. And this is something I think uh, Abnett and Lanning, they've done this trick a couple times, mostly with Phylon Moondragon. And they do it again. 
that I really like where um so the, mm-hmm. the torture is like stripping memories from Philavel and he keeps on threatening to take the memories of Moondragon mm-hmm. and Philavel is like screaming and freaking out and because of their connection Moondragon can feel her across the universe and so the one action scene ends up like uh influencing the uh, the the other mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Phyla's experiences end up like giving Moondragon enough information that she uh, is acting differently. I mean, she's mostly screaming and freaking out, but... Yeah, which makes Star-Lord think that something's up, so he starts to push Blastar out of the way and get everyone <laughs> away. And that's when the space the space sniper shoots, and so Blastar is saved by accident. Right, exactly. And I I just they've done this trick a bunch of times where like uh, two people are connected through magic across a great distance and that ends up completely uh changing the direction of the story. Yep. But it turns out these bullets are like what are they called? They're a nanotic bioweapon. They're just like creepy lizard insects that <laughs> sure. go to attack. They're Zerg. So the guardians have to beat them up. <laughs> They're Zerg, yeah. That works. And once Phyla knows that she's connected with Moondragon, she basically screams all of the information, breaks her chains, and beats up Flens, the, the guy who's been attacking them with the soul whip. Yeah, all of its metal as hell. Uh, but I love Wes Craig drawing Phyla, breaking her chains, and forming a death sword with her mind. It's so cool. And then we get this the splash page of her freeing everyone, and I, the best boy, Cosmo, is back. With the, uh, now who wants to go save the universe? You're like, oh yes, that's like a great page to end on. And then um, the cover for the next one asks the question, what lies in the cocoon? Which we've been asking for months. And I wrote down when we saw the hand coming out of the cocoon, I'm like, I think I know who's in the cocoon now. I think I know. I'm guessing you guessed right. But I, as you, as anyone who has been listening can know, I literally did not figure it out until this this read through, and I probably should have figured it out much earlier. Yeah, there were signs. There were signs. It'll be, it's fun when you go back through it. Yeah. I wrote in my notes, by the way, at this point, that issue number twenty four fucking rips. Issue twenty four is fantastic, and uh, I, I'm certain you're gonna, uh, we're gonna talk about your reservations about the very last page. Well, well, yeah, but Just um, a bit. but I love the the issue. So it starts off with these full pages of uh, sometimes with a couple of panels of each member of this Guardians team escaping from. Uh, the Magus dungeons, and just, like, fighting a bunch of guys. And then it has yeah. this little uh, caption monologue that says, um, this is how you fight when... And then it tells you, like, uh, Phyla says, this is how you fight when you're the avatar of death and the Magus is trying to silence you. This is how you fight when every black knight and cardinal and acolyte of the church's homeworld of Sacrosanct has turned out to stop you. But then for... Um, for major victory, it says, uh, this is how you fight when you're the last survivor of the galaxy's greatest freedom fighters. And it just, like... It tells you their motivation just directly in simple terms with, like, a huge page of them just kicking ass and taking names. And all of it seems like such a strong statement of purpose that each of these characters has, like, a reason for being, a style of doing things, and this is this is it, baby. And and then Cosmo, he's either giving them their greatest fears or their, fo- their fondest wishes or simply extinguishing their minds with psionic hammer blows. Psionic hammer blows. That's freaking cool. Yeah. It's... A fantastic issue, and then Maelstrom has to show up and ruin it all by being Maelstrom. 
I mean, he, when you see him, you're just like, oh my god, this just it, it keeps on escalating. Well, yes. And yeah. what a fun! Um, I just thought this was like old school classic comics where um, you're doing character development through a big action scene, and you're letting the artwork just carry the action scene to like transcendent heights. Mm-hmm. And then even when it slows down, when we cut back to the uh, the relatively minor <laughs> fight going on at the the new Galactic Council where they've just saved Blastar and everyone. So Blastar is like, I want the Guardians gone from this area, and they're, but they're like, but she, but they were invited, and he's like, it doesn't matter. They're not, uh, they're vigilantes. They they have no no stake, no royalty, and then Star Lord gets to thinking, and we cut to the next page, and we get a little a little debrief log, and he's like, I can't believe I didn't think of this before. It's almost <laughs> worth it just to see the look on King Blastar's royal face, and they're swearing in Groot as his royal majesty, the honorable delegate from Planet X. And yeah, he just delivers a casual, I am Groot. And, what a uh... great, great way to resolve that. <laughs> Yeah, I love every single time that there's just, like, a huge problem, and then they're just like, oh, wait, we have Groot. And then it just cuts to Groot saying, I am Groot, and, like, in agreement. Mm-hmm. And, and just, like, effortlessly solving their dilemma. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also why, um, despite the fact that this kind of interrupted the flow of the otherwise wonderful fight, uh, also a great scene. Just, like, a, a great twist that uh, that Groot ended up uh, being their chief diplomat. Yeah. But then, because you can't have anything good in these comics, it always has to be followed by tragedy and sadness. Moondragon is lying on the bed. She is recovered. She starts telling them all the stuff that that Phyla fed to her, or I guess sent her way telepathically. And then, and she reveals that it was all a trick. They all they're all alive. Uh, and they're like, "Do you mean that?" Magus is alive and then they're like we killed him right and then we get this really nice panel of just Starlord looking down all in shadows then Heather gives me the answer I'm not expecting and we're all like oh no yeah and you see her uh, with uh, with her tears streaming out and she's just like I know this is bad news yeah so we cut back to the battle they're fighting the whatever the, the leader of the sex, she's the sexy nuns yeah the matriarch they defeat her pretty handily which surprises me uh she goes out like a chump and phyla has been kind of dragged over to the cocoon by maelstrom and phyla is pretty unhinged at this point like she's she's clearly flailing and and freaking out and maelstrom's able to just kind of lead her along the way and she's like wait wait adam warlock's in there that's why you didn't want to want to open it okay and maelstrom's wait 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 warlock (sighs) whatever just open the cocoon she opens the cocoon and out comes Naked Thanos. Naked and covered in disgusting golden goo. Yep. Is the, the villain of the highest grossing film of all time. And he's just vaporizing her with eye beams. Vaporizing her with eye beams. So I gotta say, that's how you have Thanos re-enter the story. Naked and covered in goo. Yep. Uh, him being in the cocoon sure was uh, like inevitable in this like wonderful way, right? Kinda, yeah. You... You knew he was taken off the board very early on in the story because Drax kills him, mm-hmm. but you you knew that he couldn't be gone forever, and you know that the conclusion of this is called the Thanos Imperative. Yeah, I knew Thanos would be coming back in some way. I didn't know how or why, and as we weren't developing the cocoon, I kept thinking that was going to be the reveal of Adamagus, and maybe Mag- Magus would be the re- 
you know, the reason that Thanos came back. And maybe it was. Maybe, like, they weren't originally going to bring back Thanos in this cocoon, and they were planning on maybe doing something with Magus. But as things played out, that's not what happened. Uh, and Magus came back through timey-wimey shenanigans, and instead we got to have the big purple reason come out. Yeah, and... I know that we've kind of implied this, but allow me to explicitly say, really sucks that after uh, Philo was revealed not to be really dead that we go went ahead and killed her again. Right? Right? I just... Come on. And I want to... Let's do I want to actually uh, bear down into this. The, the part of it that's the most disappointing is that in these wonderful issues, Phyla is, like, really reflecting on the journey she's taken this far. And she's been, like, a major player. I don't think she's been sidelined or particularly done dirty. Like, she was, uh, she defeated Ultron at the end of the Conquest War, and Mm -hmm. um, she's had, like, a bunch of big hero moments. But she's also failed a lot, and I don't mind that. I don't mind stories where heroes fail. And she's reflecting on that. She just thinks of, like, all the legacies that she's let down, all the people who inspired her, and all the times in which she's failed them. And then at the end of this, when like she's uh, she's fighting desperately, barely holding it together, to kill her at that moment is like really dark and upsetting. And this is pretty much it for this iteration of Philovel. The one that we end up bringing back later is um, a different universe as Philovel. She's a different character. She's a blue Cree for one. Huh. And she's got like a different look and a different history. And I'm happy we have some version of Phylovel in the comics right now. I like her. I like her as a character, and I don't mind that this, uh, you know, it's comic book shenanigans. I don't care how we brought her back. I don't yeah. care that it's not the 616 Philo, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think this is, like, a really rough place to leave it, especially after we did so many deaths and reversals with these two, with Phyla and Moondragon, to then reverse it, have her think about all her failures, and then kill her is just, like... Uh, I mean, that's real sad for me. Yeah, and it's not even a tragedy. Like, in a tragedy, the failings of the character are usually the reason for their downfall. And that's not what happens here. Like, sure, like, her becoming the Avatar of Death was motivated by her, her grief, but everything that was her as part of the Avatar of Death, none of that really played into her character. There was no thematic resonance, like... Her dying at the hand in this brutal way at the hands of Thanos really has no, it has nothing to do with her arc. It's just a consequence of this last action. And not even that, like it could have been Thanos bursts out, slaps her across the room and like she's damaged or, or whatever. Like she, like the death he steals, part. Uh, clearly he's got to steal her mantle, right? He's got to, cause he wants to be the avatar of death. That's his whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I get that, and I get that he would be motivated to kill her. But yeah, like you said, uh, there's all sorts of different ways they could have taken the story. And ultimately, um, it would have been stronger if Phyla rejected that that premise of her as the uh, Avatar of Death. And that's why it's taken away from her, because she like, makes one final choice to stand against it or something. But she doesn't. Yeah. She just dies confused and sad. Yeah. And uh, there didn't seem to really be a point. Like, why, if, if Thanos was in this cocoon the whole time, why make Phylovel the... Avatar of Death anyway. I guess the idea was, oh, only Thanos can kill Adam Megas or whatever. But even oh, well, there, it's... We'll see what they yeah. want with Thanos uh, in, a, in a couple weeks. Yeah. It's, well, in a, in, in a month, because next week we don't deal with anything with Thanos, right? Uh, right? Well... <laughs> You'll see. Anyway, <laughs> issue 25 is the conclusion of Abnet Landing's run on Guardians of the Galaxy, yes? Yeah. And it brings us back to you know, 
Starhawk kind of opining about the future tense finally being saved, but also still being in danger because the present, past perfect present person doesn't tense is still in flux or something. Well, the important thing is that it's just really giving a lot of – there's been a lot of these, like, big wars and these big conflicts and everything. But um, in the year 3000, Starhawk is worried about what's about to happen in the Thanos Imperative. Yeah. That's like the mm -hmm. – one, just there's been uh, an arc of this entire Guardian series of the – timelines are interacting and there's this like terrible cataclysm that's going to be bigger than everything else and this is like the final word on that and it's just like yes the thanos imperative is going to be bigger than annihilation it's going to be bigger than conquest it's going to be bigger than war of kings it's going to be bigger than the fault like this is it this is all of them put together and they're trying to give you that weight and i think they mostly succeed yeah and i think it also helps and makes it more more fun that he he was watching these debrief logs the whole time like that's why we keep cutting back to it. It's like he's scrubbing through them trying to find the moment and the thing that's out of place. And it turns yeah. out that it's that is Thanos. Thanos should not have been back. Thanos should have, should have stayed dead because he was happy with death. Like that was his thing. He did not want to come back to life. He wasn't always angling for it. Like there was no grand plan for him to come. He's he was happy being dead. Right. And I like that justification for the testimonials, and I like that we've been seeing it from the perspective of Starhawk the entire time, who's a surprising perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, what did you think about the Guardians reuniting with their dead pals? I liked it. Like, it was a nice reunion, but I don't think they really had enough time to process and to really, like, sell how kind of amazing art that moment would have been, uh, especially for, for Starhawk, who thought that one, he had saved everyone by doing some horrible thing and then found out that he did this horrible thing, but it didn't take, but also that everyone else is still alive. So there's that. Like a lot of the messy emotions get shunted aside for a big, a big, well, well drawn and well paced punch him up with a Thanos that doesn't really, you know, know anything or have any of the normal Thanos things. He's just kind of there to grunt and scream and shoot eye beams. Uh, Drax punches him. Always fun. Yeah, he's got, uh, like, the sophistication of a newborn. I yeah. like – I feel like a lot of the time – Thanos is one of those unfortunate uh, superhero universe characters where, like, his deal has very little to do with his abilities. Yeah. Right? Like, he can, like – if he can shoot energy blasts and he's invincible and super – and, like, God strong, then why is he always, like, manipulating people? Why doesn't he just, like, waltz in wherever he wants and just take what he wants? Yeah. And in this issue, this is just like, a, oh, yeah, he could just, like, charge through all these guys, and he is indestructible, and he could just shoot, like, impossible lasers from his head. <laughs> yeah, he could do it, but he's not going to. Yeah, he chooses not to. But here, he doesn't even have that choice, so he's just kind of going kabloom, could crack, could chew with his eyes, until Peter pulls out a the cosmic cube that he had used to defeat Adamagus, which, because the cube didn't have didn't use the energy it now has the energy again but not enough to send thanos back to to to, to death yeah it's like flawed now it's cracked it's just enough yeah. to zap him once yeah and zap him into i guess back to himself versus being dead again which would have been the ideal the ideal uh reason which i guess the cracked cosmic cubed is the thing that ends up causing the the future imperfect. Uh, history is about to go into shock. 
but then it doesn't because the series ends. Yeah, well, it ends with uh, the Guardians hanging on the bar, which you love one last time, and um, not. And even though they 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 stopped Thanos's rampage, they reunited most of the team, but not Philovel. But yeah. now, we you know, obviously we're not done with the Guardians, and next next time we're not reading Guardians, but next next time we will have their final conflict and it's a pretty it's a doozy i think you'll feel that it earned its weight all right let's hope so but that'll be uh, two episodes from now uh in the meantime elias how did you feel about our uh, trip through the realm of kings i that a lot a lot to consider yeah i don't really know how i feel about realm of kings as a as a thing sure uh versus yeah, yeah, yeah. The names, the names, misleading. It's not. It doesn't really tie much together. Yeah, I. But I liked a lot of the individual pieces. Not all of them. I I know how much of a completionist you are, and I know yeah. that if I tell you, um, oh, this is a bad couple of issues. Let's just skip them. They're not important. That will just make you more voraciously curious to read them than if I had said nothing at all. Well, yeah. Why do you think I read X Men Kingbreaker? Right. I I tried to avoid it with that. <laughs> But I truly believe that if I was going back through this read-through, I would trim a lot of the fat. Yeah. Yeah, and we made the conscious choice to be like, we are doing everything in this one instead of going, you know, disposing of the stuff that's that's inessential or not very good. Yeah, but that's definitely a judgment call I would make if I was recommending this to a friend who was like, I trust you, uh, just uh, get, I don't want to... I only want the good stuff. Give me the good stuff. I would go through this. I mean, maybe we'll do that at the end. We'll figure out what we think is the essential read through and cut out some of the uh, miniseries and publish that. Hmm. I think that would be a fun project. Uh, yeah. Cause uh, like, like I uh, need more on my plate. Right. But I feel like, uh, like uh, this uh, son of Hulk thing was like uh, completely oh superfluous and, yeah. um, felt like a waste, but I loved that guardians issue. Um, I don't like how it did my girls dirty, but like I said, the first time I read that, I didn't realize that was part of a pattern of sexism. I just thought that was an exciting and tragic story twist. Yeah. Still sucks that at the end, the file is still dead. I think irregardless of anything else, that still is not a great place to leave her. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe at maybe least we'll do when like Moon Dragon first died, it was it was a sacrifice. It was like the whole the whole thing felt earned, and then you got this time to mourn. You did all this stuff with it afterwards. And granted, we haven't read anything after this, but yeah. But overall, I really liked these these Guardians issues, and they, I mean, they're the end of this this era, and that that makes me really sad. I feel like there could have been a lot more done there could have been a lot more stories there could have been you know just more palling around with these guys as they run around the universe because they they were all they were formed to save the world to kind of close these rifts and even though we kind of got away from that and i'm guessing that by the end of this run the rift will be closed or something will have happened with it that seems like the natural conclusion to this saga um, I still wish we, we could have gotten more with this, this team and both the character team and the creative team. Yeah, as we get closer to the end, I think I will walk you and our readers through a couple of other places where you can uh, continue the reading, even though uh, it... We uh, won't be reading it. Yeah, we won't be reading it uh, for the show. But we will, however, for next time, be reading uh, more of these issues. Uh, specifically, it's actually a pretty easy week reading order-wise, because we only have... Um, uh, we're only reading Nova issues and another miniseries. 
And uh, that miniseries, in our reading order, we have placed in the middle. So what you're going to do is you're going to read Nova number 32 to 35. Then we're going to hop over to Realm of Kings Imperial Guard, which is a five-issue miniseries. And then we're going to read the final issue of Nova, which is number 36. And that'll be it for next time. Yeah. So if you're reading this in trade, uh, basically just keep the same trades from before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Realm the realm of Kings trade, which I think collected most all of the miniseries, um, which has the Imperial Guard one. And the Nova issues are in Nova Volume 6, Realm of Kings, which you if you have reading it there, first half is, you know, first half was what we read this week. Pretty simple. Yeah, for us, very simple. Yeah. I mean, uh, after going from, we read 20, 19 to 20 issues this time, and we've been consistently doing like between 15 and 20, just knocking them back since, I think since Conquest. No, since, even since Annihilation. Goodness. Goodness me. It's not going to be so bad, uh, from here on out. Uh, yeah. But if people can't wait until then, Elias, where might they find you on the internet? They can find me on Twitter at Quetzalish. That's Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. Uh, I have nothing pithy this week because all of the Cancerverse stuff has just kind of zapped my brain. <laughs> uh, but you could also find me writing at multiversitycomics.com, where other than hosting this glorious podcast. Uh, I cover Supergirl, Riverdale, and for the summer, Babylon 5. Demon Slayer will be done by the time this episode goes live. That was my summer comics binge. And yeah, who knows? Maybe I'll have picked up a new project by, by then, which hopefully not because I don't need any more projects. And where can they find I you, Jake? You do not. No, I don't. Where can they find you, Jake, on the larger interwebs? As, yeah, as for myself, I can also be found on Twitter.com uh, at rambling underscore moose. Uh, you can also find me at multiversitycomics.com where I'm writing about X-Men a great deal and sometimes about Attack on Titan and other things too. It's a good time. You should come hang out with us on Multiversity. We will see you next time for the second half, Realm of Kings. See you there.